0: We um, are thankful to be here this morning. I always love to be in church and especially love to preach God's word. We're going to look at Second um, Peter today. Now, I can tell this joke because all my family's has given me permission because I have a Filipino daughter. Uh, my son married a half Korean girl. I have a Japanese brother-in-law. So I'm going to tell you this joke, and they all said it's fine. <laughs> they don't say I'm fine, but the joke is the the Wong family the family the Wong family had a baby girl and she was Caucasian so problems you know so they named her Sam Ting Sam Ting Wong because they said two Wongs don't make a white <laughs> oh well and I have two kids that were in China for one for ten years and so uh, I, I love Asia, love the people of Asia, Live, they lived there a long time, my wife lived there a lot longer than I did because her dad retired military, and uh, so they're special people to me, but anyway, we're in first, uh, Second Peter chapter 1, and, and last week I preached real hard, maybe scared some folks, I don't know, uh, this week I'll do a little more teaching, so it'll be a little toned down a little bit, but uh, we want to look at this word. Uh, this, this epistle today. Epistles are really the depth of Scripture. When you study the epistle, you can really dive down in. They're great. Uh, they're not maybe as challenging as Hebrews 6 or as, uh, as exciting as Revelation, but Peter just writes two great epistles. And so we're going to share these truths with you today. Uh, let's stand and read this morning. We're going to preach nine verses but I'm going to preach. Uh, just read a couple of verses to you. Over in First um, Peter chapter five, verse twelve, I'm going to read a verse, uh, and then we're going to look at Second Peter chapter one. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. That's an important verse because there's been questions and attacks years ago when they put the canon together that's how they put the 27 books of the bible together some people said well first and second peter the greek is so much different that peter couldn't have written both but that verse explains why they're different because he had someone write first peter second peter he writes himself and now peter's nothing like paul in his writing because he was a fisherman and I'm already preaching, we haven't even sat down. He's a fisherman. Where Paul was educated under the great Gamaliel, and he was really a really well-trained, educated man. Peter, of course, Paul was lost most of, that, most of that time, but Peter was just a fisherman. But boy, how God used a fisherman. Then 2 Peter Chapter 1, Simon Peter. It tells us who the author is for sure. A servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. Speak to hearts this morning. Hide me behind the cross. Help folks to see Jesus, your son, and to draw closer through your word. Bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter, of course, a fisherman, just a an ordinary guy, you know, like all of us. Hopefully we can say that, right? Just a, just a common guy, a down-to-earth guy. And uh, I, you know, we hear a lot of criticisms of Peter because, you know, he gets upset. tries to cut a guy's head off. and The guy ducks, he gets his ear. He rebukes the Lord and said, you know, you're not going to wash my feet. And uh, he's, he's, he's always that guy that uh, he's a mover and a shaker. He gets things done, but he's spontaneous. He got in trouble a few times, but man, did God ever use him? And this this is written after um, uh, an experience he had in a couple of life experiences that we'll talk about later. But Simon Peter, Simon, of course, is his Hebrew name. Peter's a Greek name that God gave him and said, the church is going to be built upon your profession of faith. That's how to interpret that passage, by the way. It's not, the church is not built on Peter, but on his profession of faith. The church is built on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he says he's a servant. And we're going to just break down all these because with, with, where Paul writes 14 books, we may do that once in all 14 books. We're going to do it today about Peter because he gives us these two books and we want to learn about what type of person he was. He calls himself a servant. Now there are five different words, Greek words translated servant in your Bible. And in one case, it's translated servant. It's the same word is also translated deacon, because deacons are servants. We know that we're all supposed to be servants. But this word is unique in that this word is a word that means a slave, a slave, not just a servant, but a slave. And in other words, we all should be servants, but we all should be slaves as well, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, he redeemed us with his blood. That means he bought us. He paid for us with his precious blood. We belong to him. And that's the word here. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, that is translated here in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, it's translated bondman. In Revelation 6.15, I'm reading in the middle of the verse, and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. And that's talking about future times. But there it's translated bondman, opposite of free man. So Peter considers himself a servant of God. Now the writing is very similar in this book to Jude. You compare them sometimes, deal with the same thing, false doctrine in the church. First, Peter dealt with persecution. Persecution actually strengthens the church. The church in China was strong because of the persecution there. They'll open up and start over somewhere else someday. In fact, there's more Christians, they tell us, in China than in America. A lot more people there, but more Christians in China than in America. More Christians per capita in South Korea than in in America, and more Christians in China. But anyway, we know that 1 Peter dealt with persecution, which strengthens the church. Suffering strengthens a church. 2 Peter here deals with false doctrine, and that can weaken a church. And so sound doctrine's very, very important. We know this is so unique. Peter's writing, there are 54 words used in this book that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So he has a unique style, and of course, he was a unique person. His vocabulary was different than than the other gospels and the other writers, the other apostles. And of course, he, he deals with some doctrinal issues here, and two big doctrinal problems they had in that day. They had Gnosticism. And don't worry about that word, okay? It's related to our word knowledge. The Gnostics were people who believed that head knowledge was super important. They could show their superior superior personhood. They could impress people with facts and so forth. And it was a problem in the day. And so Peter had to deal with that kind of knowledge, head knowledge, and say the most important knowledge is experiential knowledge. And that's the word that's used here five times. Three times is a verb. Two times it's a noun in your eight verses here we're going to look at today. The word knowledge. And this word knowledge means experiential knowledge. Have you experienced Christ knowing things about Scripture? Did you know one of the great Russian leaders, I say great, one of the terrible Russian leaders, memorized the entire New Testament and went to hell? David Koresh, a cult leader, memorized a lot of Scripture and New Testament passages and went to hell. It's not about memorizing and knowing facts. It's about knowing him. It's about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care how smart you are. I want to know, do you know Jesus? Do you know him today? It's a great chorus, isn't it? Do you know him today? And so here he deals with this experiential knowledge. And we know that, that, it's, that that's a full knowledge. It's a practical knowledge. It's a prudence. It's a discernment. It's a personal knowledge because you know the person of Christ. And so here... We had the Gnostics, and then we had another group of people, the Antonianisms. The Antonianism was the doctrine, and I'm not even going to try and say that again. But these people, they really emphasized the fact that since they were saved by faith, they didn't need anything else. And so Peter will talk about all the things we need in addition to our salvation. He'll say, add to our faith, and list seven things today we'll look at. They didn't think moral law mattered either. They thought the moral law was irrelevant. You say, Pastor, what is the moral law? I'm glad you asked. You don't ask questions enough. Thanks for asking. There's the civil law, and you know what that is. The civil law is your traffic laws, your thou shalt not steal, you know, don't steal, uh, and, and the laws we have in our society. There's ceremonial law. And in the Old Testament, it was laid out certain things they had to do to. Observe Sabbath days and feast days. And so that was also written and important. But the moral law is not written. The Bible says it's a law within us. You know, before the law was ever given, before we had any Bible, before Moses got the Ten Commandments or the five books of the, the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, before he ever got that, how did Abraham know anything about right and wrong? He had within him a moral law. No doubt God spoke to Abraham personally. We know that. He entered his tent. We know Abraham tithed. We know that people prior to the law were given a conscience and a moral law. That's why people know right from wrong even before they know God. They have a moral law. And so this group of people said the moral law is irrelevant because we're under grace. We don't need to pay attention to that. We're saved. We have people today that say, well, we're saved. We can live any way we want to. Well, it's not true at all. God will spank us, won't he? We can't live any way we want to. God expects us to live according to the word of God. So in verses 1 and 2, we see we have Simon Peter's servant and an apostle. That means a sent one of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith. The word obtained is an interesting word. In the original, it means, uh, it means you've received it by divine allotment. And so I've entitled this section, Divine Allotment. You've received it by divine allotment. You didn't earn it. To obtain like precious faith, you don't earn like precious faith. You receive it because God has chosen to give you that. Isn't that great? Do you know you couldn't even have enough faith to be saved if it weren't for the grace of God? You understand that? You, you, can't, you, you couldn't have the seed, the, the, the faith of a mustard seed, the smallest seed known in that part of the world. You couldn't have that much faith without God. You didn't earn it. You obtained it by divine inheritance. God gave it to you because he's a gracious God, a giving God. For God so loved the world that he gave. Godly people, people who love are givers. There are some people that have cirrhosis not of the liver, but cirrhosis of the giver. God gave because he's a God of love. And so we find here a divine allotment, and it says like precious faith. And what Peter is saying here is that all Gentiles, including us, thank God, have the same faith that the saved Jews had. Now this is big for Peter. Remember, Peter was kind of a racist at one time. Now that term's used too loosely today. I have certain thoughts about people, that doesn't make me a racist, okay? I don't like looting and I don't like some of the stuff that's going on in our country and I'll say so. I, it's not because I'm a racist, I just think it's wrong. But I think racist is sinful. There, is, there have been times in church where I've experienced uh, racism. I've had people say things about people I'd invited to church Even in Rossville, I invited a a ball player, a 6'9", fella, James Ransburg, to church. And when he's in the parking lot, somebody called him the N-word. And I said, wait a minute, he's my friend. You don't call him that. He's a brother in Christ. And he's a good ball player, too. He was drafted by the Atlanta Hawks. So he was a good one. But anyway, so racism's wrong. And I don't want to stay there very long. But Peter had a problem with, with Gentiles. And he would act one way in front of the Jews and then the Gentiles, were, were, were he'd act a different way in front of the Gentiles. And then when they were together, he would ignore the Gentiles. He wouldn't speak to them because Jews looked down upon the Gentiles somewhat. So Paul, what would Paul do? Oh, Paul, he just called him out on it. <laughs> he said, you're wrong, buddy. You're wrong. You need to treat them as equals. So Peter's saying this is big. Of course, he's inspired by God to say this, but he said, like precious faith. Uh, and, and saved Gentiles had the same faith those early Jews had. And that's his point here. Now we have precious faith here in verse 4. We'll look at it later. We have precious, precious promises. And back in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, First Peter, we had precious blood. Valuable faith. Valuable. Precious faith here. Like precious faith with us through, what? through the righteousness of God. Are you aware that I'm righteous today? Now you look at me and you see my faults. You can you see my sins. Sometimes maybe you can see something in, in my life that I, I can't see. I need to see and you can see it. And you need to pray for me. But you know what? In God's eyes, from God's perspective, I'm righteous. Jesus Christ's bloodshed applied righteousness to my life, and my sin was placed on him. So I'm righteous because of the blood of Christ. So we have here this righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have like precious faith, righteousness, and then we have another great thing here. It says we have peace, grace, and peace in verse 2. Multiplied. Why? Why? How? Through the knowledge of Him. When you know Him experientially, when you've experienced God, you'll have peace. And you'll have, here, it says grace and peace. Multiplied, we'll add in a few verses here, we're multiplying. Multiplied because of knowing Him. Because I know the Lord, no matter what comes my way, I can lay down at night and have peace. If I'm troubled, I'll pray. Be anxious for nothing. That means don't worry about anything and everything. Prayer and supplication. Specific prayers. When you worry, stop and pray. Takes care of the worry. But because you know Him, grace and peace can be multiplied in your life. And I have seen God's grace in my life so many times. And I haven't deserved it. You know, I haven't earned it. It was given to me because God is a God who is gracious. So we have this knowledge. And knowledge is important doctrinally. It's important because it's important in imparting truth. Knowledge is important financially when it comes to managing your affairs. I know Christians, you know, the Bible talks sometimes about the world being wiser than the children of God. I know Christians sometimes are the worst money managers I know. They go out, they borrow for things they can't, you know, can't afford with money that's not theirs to impress people they don't even like. And we make stupid decisions. So there's no doubt knowing him should help us financially, knowing him should help us morally, discretion. We should have discretion during decision making. So knowing Him is important. And five times we find this word knowledge here in this text, experiential knowledge. We get to verse 3, and we have power at our disposal. Notice the divine dynamite, and according as His divine power. And that Greek word is the word dynamite. Not the word authority, but the word dynamite. We have power unlimited because we know Him. Divine power, divine dynamite. And look at it says here. Divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, God-likeness. Are you like God? You have the divine power to be like Him. And this word life is our word zoology. We We get our word zoology from it. Several words in your Bible translated life. Zoology, we know biology is another word for life. We know psychology, the word psych is translated life at times. It's also translated soul in your Bible. Here is the word we get our word zoo from, life. And we know that as believers, we have eternal life. The animal kingdom will never experience that. But we we have eternal life. And it says here that we have life and God is, how do we have that? Through the knowledge of what? Him. The knowledge of Him. Do you know him today? I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about have you experienced him? Who? Jesus. Is he, is he living in your heart? Is he, is he part of your life? And we, we, we see here knowing him that hath called us to glory. To glory. That's the word doxa. Doxology. I know I am told you to be kind of deep today. Just bear with me. But as a kid growing up, we used to conclude every church service with a doxology. Luke has seven doxologies in the Gospel of Luke. But we used to conclude church singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I can't carry a tune. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we'd conclude, and we'd say, Amen, and we'd be dismissed. We'd have the invitation, then we'd sing the doxology to glorify God. To glorify God. You know, we're supposed to look up. Our salvation physically draweth nigh. We're already saved spiritually, but we're going to get a new body. One day he's going to come out, and we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Our salvation is nearer than we think. And so we we want to glorify God. We want to look up and recognize the greatness of God. Uh, I, I love what Scripture says. Set your affection not on the things of the earth. Look not on the things of the earth. Set your affection on things above. Above. I pulled this out of my files. Years ago I preached a message on the turkey vulture of all things, a buzzard, you know. How they they, they have the ability to eat a dead carcass, maggots, cholera, and all. And they wait till it's rotten. So rotten that they go down, they, the first thing they do is check the eye, and if the eye is rotten, they know they can just feast on this disgusting stuff. We've got a little while before lunch, you'll get it out of your system. And they defend themselves by, by if, if, a, if a, a predator, a, a wildcat, or a mountain lion, or a lion, or anything gets near them, they'll shoot this stuff from their stomach 10 to 15 feet, and predators stay away from them. They're disgusting, disgusting. And the thing about the buzzard is that it's interesting that if, if you were to put them in a fenced enclosure, six to eight feet, no top on it, they couldn't get in the air. They need 10 to 12 feet to get off the ground. So they, they wouldn't even have a, a top on the enclosure, they could not get in the air. And then I read this week where a bat, if you take a bat and put it on a completely flat surface, I mean a big flat surface with no elevation at all, no bump or ridges, it cannot fly. A bat needs to have a launching pad, so to speak, a little little angle to flip up into the air from. They can grab something, pull themselves up and fly, but they cannot elevate from a perfectly flat surface. If you put a bat on there and took that plant off, that bat could not get into the air. It could fall off, I suppose, because that's not on the ground. But that's my point. And then another interesting thing in God's creation is, is the bumblebee, which I, I mentioned a few weeks ago about it can't, it defies all the laws of aviation. But if you put a, a bumblebee in a mayonnaise jar, a big jar, no top on it, and put it on the ground, it cannot get out of that jar for some reason, it'll fly around at the bottom of the jar, trying to go down and go out, but it never looks up. Never looks up. And unfortunately, people are that way in many ways. We're like the little critters that can't get up. Get up into the air and rise. We need to, we need to read Isaiah 40, the eagle that mounts up with, and just goes up into heaven, you know. We need to be like eagles, spread our wings and fly. We need to look up. In heaven, we don't. Guilt looks back. Some of you live lives of guilt. You've had things that you've done, things you've done wrong, and you keep looking back, wondering, when are my mistakes going to catch up to me? Guilt makes us look back. The Bible says, forgetting those things which are behind. Move forward. Press toward the mark of the high calling. You know, look at Jesus, move forward. And then sorrow causes people to look down. Some of you may have be in sorrow. Something's bothering you. You've, you've maybe lost someone or, or maybe you're broken about something in your life and you continually look down. I've met people that physically look down all the time. You know, something's bothering them. They're just constantly looking down. And anxiety or worry looks around. I got my financial problems over here, and I've got this family problem here, and I got problems at work, and I'm worried about it. It doesn't look up either. Faith looks up. Faith looks up, folks. We need to set our affection on things above. We need our help comes from above. Look up to heaven. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So we have here this wonderful text. He mentions virtue. We'll talk about that in verse 5. And then we find in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises. That word great is our word mega. We talked about precious faith and now precious promises. Great and precious promises. I'll tell you what, God's promises are pretty big. You think about this. God said, he had an angel say when Jesus went away to the, to the, the 11 who watched him go away. Don't worry, he's coming back just like he He's, he's going to come back in the same manner down to this earth. That's a big promise. That's a mega promise. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's a big promise, folks. Amen. That's a big promise. He's never going to forsake me. No matter what's going on in my life, what's, no matter what's going on in your life, he will never, ever, ever leave you. And he keeps his promises. Those are great promises. We have a divine nature. And it says here that we mean by partakers, same word in your Bibles, translated fellowship and communion in several ways, of a divine nature. Did you know you have a divine nature? Inside of your rotten old nature is a new nature, the new man. That's right. All of you, if you're saved, if you're born again, you have a divine nature. You also have a sinful flesh. And those two are in constant conflict, aren't they? A divine nature. I'm so thankful that God has placed that in me. And that happened at salvation. This, This word corruption means ruin. And I'm so thankful that because of what God did, I've escaped ruin that is in the world, that's in this philosophy, that's in this cosmos. You know, this, this world is, has a, is a terrible place with a terrible philosophy, and people without Christ have a terrible worldview. They're just messed up. We're just pilgrims here passing through. And we've escaped the ruin of the world. We've escaped the corruption of this world because of Christ. Knowing him changed everything about me. Knowing him. Now, in chapter 2, if you want to turn over there, it talks about pollution is a different word than corruption. It says in verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world... Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are also, again, entangled therein. So, you know, our sanctification isn't finished yet. The word corruption has to do with our salvation. We're saved from the corruption of this world. But guess what? Our sanctification helps us defeat temporarily the pollutions of the world. But do you know that if you aren't careful, you'll go right back and get entangled in the world again? We know Christians right now that aren't in church this morning because of the world. We can say, well, we're not there because of these circumstances or that. But the truth is, you know, I I really respect people who are afraid to come to church because of the virus. Legitimately afraid and have legitimate health concerns. But Corona is not going to be here in five years, but people will still be using it as an excuse. And people use everything as an excuse. And the Lord's day is no longer important to people. You know why? They, they've gone back and gotten entangled in the world. We need to be careful. We don't need to be entangled in this world. And that's our sanctification process. That, that's, someone said that, you know, the, the matter of escaping corruption has to do with our internal salvation, but having escaping, escaping pollution has to do with our external sanctification. You know what? God's still working on me. If you don't like what you see in my life, and nobody's come up and said they don't like me, okay? But if, if, if you don't like what you see in someone else's life it's a Christian, just remember, God's not finished with them yet. Sanctification begins the moment you're saved. It doesn't end until we get a new body. When our body's changed in the twinkle of an eye at the rapture, or when we die and our spirit leaves our body, then it'll get a new tabernacle that's the end of sanctification, death or rapture. But until then, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Took him just a week to make the sun and the moon, but he's still working on me. And I wish that some way I could be completed in my sanctification process, but it's not going to happen until I get a new body. A new body, a new way of thinking, a new mind, and, 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 and especially a new heart and body. But here, we, we're, we're told here now that we have a responsibility. We have a divine nature, having escaped the corruptions of the world through loss. And besides this, giving all diligence. Here's where our effort comes in. We are to give all effort, all diligence. So it's not good enough just to be saved. I'm thankful I've escaped the corruption, the ruin of this world. I'm glad I'm saved, but that's not the end for me. I have to add things to my resume, spiritually speaking. And he starts by saying, all these things I need to add. And besides this, giving all those, add to your faith. Add to your faith. You're saved, that's wonderful, but you've got to add to that. And the word add is actually our word choreograph, like a choir director. He'll add a bass if he needs one. And, and Greece, and they would the Greeks would add all kinds of pieces to their great music programs. And we're supposed to add to our life. And notice what it says to add. First of all, virtue. Virtue. That's moral excellence. Wow, that's tough. That is tough to add moral excellence. And each one of these leads to another. And the final one is like the crowning achievement of what you add to your life. And and it takes time and it's hard and he's still working on me. But notice here, virtue here in the the text and then knowledge there together. Knowledge Again, this word of experiential knowledge has to do with discernment, moral discernment. We have moral excellence and moral discernment. We have to add those things to our lives. It's pretty important. If your morals aren't good, you need to add those. Make a decision to not be immoral, to not fail morally. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. Young people, listen to me. Young men, young ladies, listen to these verses. You've got to listen to this. All of us need to listen to this. Amen. But in Proverbs chapter 5, I'm going to read several verses and just take heed what Proverbs says. Proverbs 5, 5. It's talking in Proverbs about a strange woman, an immoral woman it was talking about for the lips of a strange woman. Verse 3. Pick up in verse 5. Her feet go down to death and her steps take hold of hell. Proverbs 5, 5. Verse 8. Remove thy way far from her. Verse 11, and thou mourn at last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. Chapter 6, verse 25. Turn the page. Chapter 6, verse 25. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. Uh, Verse 26, for by means of a whorish woman is a man brought to a piece of bread. Verse uh, 28. Can one go unto hot coals and his feet not be burned? Verse 29. So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. Verse 32. But whoso committeth adultery with woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Verse 33. A woman, a wound and dishonor will he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Hey, listen, young people. Listen, old people. Listen, all people. Have moral discernment. Add that to your faith. Be committed to be faithful to your spouse. To be morally pure in everything you do. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. That they may keep thee from the strange woman. It talks about wisdom. It'll keep you from a strange woman. Verse 8. Passing through the street near her corner, and he went the way of her house. Verse 10. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot, and of subtle heart. Verse 18 says, Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. Verse 19, For the good man is not at home. He's gone away for a long journey. Verse 22, He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or a fool to the correction of the stocks. Have moral discernment, add that to your faith. How many people could we name or how many people do we know who've fallen in that way and lost the respect of their fellow church members, lost the respect of their family? Think about what it's going to do to your kids and your grandkids. And some of you don't have kids yet, but one day you'll want to have them and you'll want to be able to say to them, I've added to my faith moral discernment moral knowledge, and I don't want to fall. I'm glad God is able to keep us from falling. But when we push and push and push to push and have, to have our own way, sometimes he says, okay. It allows us to self-destruct, doesn't he? I love his grace and mercy, but folks, He also puts safeguards and speaks to our minds and warns us through scripture and from our conscience. He says, don't do that. We have plenty of warning. When we do things like that, we've chosen to do it. Years ago, I had a missionary. I knew I didn't know him well, met him once or twice, and he came home from the field because he had one affair after another. And he said to me, women just wouldn't leave me alone. Now, if you saw this guy, you knew that wasn't true. Okay, he just didn't wasn't a handsome guy. The truth was, he pursued women, always telling them how beautiful they looked and how good they looked, and always rubbing their shoulders and all that stuff. And he fell, and he ruined his life, and he ruined he ruined his wife, and he hurt his kids. Listen, there are consequences for sin. Men, I talk about. It. I've preached this two or three times in two months. Not from this text, but warns you about the dangers of those things. We need to add to our faith. Then the next three we find back in our text. We need to add several more things. These next three. Temperance, patience, and godliness. I say godlikeness. Temperance, patience, and god in this verse. And these three go together. I mean, this is interesting stuff. The word temperance, as you know, is translated self-control in the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. Someone once said we need to have right order, self-control, right attitude, patience, right worship, god But self-control in pleasure. You know, we talked about morals. We need to have self-control in that kind of pleasure. But we need to have self-control in all areas. So I went to Golden Corral last Sunday. And I'm not going there on Sunday. I shouldn't say this on the tape. But it's a little pricey on Sunday. So I'm not going back there. But great stuff. And the desserts are little. So I said I can get two of them, you know? I mean, I'm 15, 20 pounds overweight. I got two. And I could justify that because there are other people who got three. You know how we compare ourselves with others, which is not wise. And I thought as I sat down, a, a brother in Christ I knew used to go here, so he's going to come back. said, hey, come and sit with me. So I sat with him. And uh, he didn't eat any dessert. And I kind of started thinking, he paid all that money and didn't get any dessert? Something wrong with him. Uh, and I, I was enjoying my two, two desserts. And I I thought, well, that wasn't so bad. It wasn't. But there have been times that I start to eat and I just keep eating and eating. I have no self-control. A pecan pie that's on the counter of my house at 10 in the morning. Let me tell you, by 10 at night, it may be almost gone. It calls my name. Here I am. I eat a piece. Oh, that was good. I'll eat another one. Then, I think, well, Okay, I'm going to have some self-control. And two hours later, guess what I'm doing? Eating another piece. And I have a sugar problem. But we like to talk about self-control and we don't want to add the eating part to it because we struggle so much, right? But if we're going to be honest and fair, we have to recognize that eating too much is also sinful. Lust is way out there. We're okay with preacher preaching that, but don't get so close to home. You know? And I struggle with that. And, 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 and a lot of people are heavy for reasons other than that, but I know my weight is attributed to that. I know that. I love sweets. I can't take a bite of chocolate, okay? Just one bite ain't happening. So I don't buy the candy bar or I eat the whole thing. And I, I use myself so that you can understand you know, in your life where you struggle with self-control, you can identify with that, right, in areas of your life. Because self-control affects all areas of our life. Not just eating and, and our morals, it affects everything. So we need to have self-control and pleasure and patience and pressure. Self-control and pleasure, patience and pressure. Now this word patient in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, we can turn there if you want to. And I'm supposed to be done now. But since we don't have much music, I preach longer. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6 says here, 2 Corinthians 1, 6, And whether we afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering. The word endure. Same word. Same Greek word. So it's translated enduring. Patience means to endure. Endure in pressure. Patience in pressure. Self-control and pleasure. And then godlikeness. This whole text, the whole big theme today is godliness, godlikeness. You can't be godly and like God unless you know God, unless you experience God. And then the last two are kind of the crowning achievement. Look at here. The last two are so important. And the godliness, brotherly kindness. You know what word that is? You know it. Phileos. The city of Philadelphia is the city of what? Now, they say, don't walk in the city there, you get killed. It's not really a place of brotherly love. But that's the word kindness. We're supposed to love each other with two kinds of loves. Now, there's four Greek words translated love. One is eros, that's sexual desire. Stergos is, is uh, if affection. But phileos, we're supposed to love each other with brotherly love. And agape. Do you know that it's not just loving your wives with agape love? We're commanded to love each other with godly love, with that kind of love. That's, that's that self-sacrificing love. God loved agape the world so much he sent his son. So here are these last two. add brotherly kindness, that's Philios. and then what? Charity. It's agape love. God loved me that way. Look at the conclusion here. And here's, here's Two verses, eight and nine, for if these things be in you, if they're in you, and notice, don't leave these two words out, and abound, and abound. The grammar there is continual, repeated action, that word abound. In other words, it's not just good enough for me to get up and preach about this. It's not just good enough for me to make a decision in my mind, I'm going to be brother and be kind to this brother. I have to live that way, be kind all the time. Add those virtues and have them all the time. Man, that's tough duty, isn't it? It's work. That's why I said all effort, diligence. And if you live a life like that, notice what it says. You won't have, there won't be idleness or emptiness, verse 8. They make you that you shall neither be barren, that's idleness, nor unfruitful. That's uh, emptiness. And they'll also, there also won't be nearsightedness and forgetfulness. Look at verse 9. For he that lack of these things is blind and cannot see afar off. That's nearsightedness. And hath forgotten. There won't be forgetfulness either. When you live a life like that, you'll be a fruit-bearing, fulfilled Christian. Being a blessing to everyone you come in contact with. So we need to do some addition today, don't we? Add, add, add. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian... You need to know him today. It's all about knowing him. None of this can happen without knowing him. None of this can happen without an effort on your part. God doesn't care how smart we are. I'm dumber than dirt. I mean, I know I struggle in life. You say, well, now you study. I do. I study. I have to study more than most pastors. I study 30 hours a week scripture because I know I need to so I can get it. Bryce, so it, I can figure it out, is I, I, I wanna, I'm going to answer for what I preach. And I want to always preach the truth. Sometimes the truth hurts me. Sometimes I'm preparing a message and I'm thinking, oh man, I'm not as patient as I need to be. And I ate all that junk last week. What is wrong with me? My mom used to say, sugars, starches, and after seven, don't eat it after seven. Cut down on your starches. Cut down. She'd say, you can get all the vegetables you want and get your sugar from fruit. I got sick of hearing that stuff. My mom was a disciplined lady. In her 80s, she was still cross-country skiing. Do you know how exhilarating, that, how tiring that is? And She's out there in her 80s. She said, at 80, I'm done with cross-country skiing. We're like, why? What took you so long? 80 years? She said, I'm tired of lugging the skis around. But she continued to ride her bike till she's 82, and she stepped off her bike and broke her toe. She said, I'm done riding the bike. That hurt too much. But at 85, she's still swimming 24 times at the pool at the Y. Not getting her hair wet, she'd wear this rubber thing on her head. And when they told her she had kidney fat, she said, I'm not going to go on machines. Because if I can't go to church, my mom would go on visitation in her 80s and visit the elderly, and all the more younger than her. And she used to bug me, bug me. You need to eat better. You need to go outside and play. You're not going to just sit here and do nothing. And she used to get on my nerves. But now I'm so grateful to have a mom who was like that, you know. And I didn't listen like I should. And now I'm riding a bike and I'm trying, but I'll tell you what, I couldn't keep up with that lady. And she's in heaven with the Lord. I can't wait to see her. But, you know, she taught me about discipline and self-control. She taught me that the reason I was struggling with things in my life is I didn't add these virtues to my life. She used to always quote Philippians 4.8. I got so sick of hearing that verse. I'd have a negative attitude. She'd say, you know, she'd quote Philippians 4.8. You know, think on these things. What's where things are kind? What's where things are lovely? And she goes through all just and pure and all that. What's her things are lovely? Think on these things. And I'd like, please, mom, I don't want to hear that. Well, I'm going to go eat an apple then, you know. And, hey, we need to hear it. It angers us to hear it from people when we know we're wrong. All right. Are you saved today? Are you adding these virtues today? Our altars are open. God bless us. We take a look in your book and we find out we're wrong, Lord, and you're always right. Help us, God, to learn to add these virtues. And God, if there's anyone here who does not know your son, Jesus, help them to come and meet you through the only mediator, the one and only Jesus Christ. Blessed now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.